everyone. Tonight I want to share with you some reflections on this mental factor of faith uh, in terms of our practice. Before I, I really got involved or fully immersed myself in the Theravada Vipassana practice, I lived in a Renzai Zen community for about six years. And after about a year of spending my time there, and it was actually a very demanding lifestyle, we would get up at three o'clock in the morning and then wouldn't go to bed till about 9.30 at night. And this was all during the summer and the winter. And then in the, uh, in the fall and spring, we'd get a break so we wouldn't have to get up until 4.30, which was... Uh... And for me, I'm actually not a morning person. <laughs> so you can imagine how demanding it was. But after a year, my, I noticed that my faith really deepened. I was really taken by the Dharma. I really fell in love with it. And so after a year, I decided to get ordained. And so I, I got ordained. I really committed my life to the Dharma. And that's the way, uh, the direction I saw it going in. Uh, and it was a, a beautiful expression of, of faith as well to, to undergo that. But then about a year after I got ordained, and especially after I got ordained, I got really gung-ho about the practice. I really tried to be diligent about it. And any of you know anything about Rinzai Zen, there's this kind of this edge to it. It's, maybe you know a little bit about that. As one friend told me, the, the way the Japanese um, interpreted Buddhism is, is they had this sense that um, in India, they would sit for eight hours a day and in China, what they would do is they would work for eight hours a day. And the Japanese thought, we want the best of both. So let's sit for eight hours a day and work for eight hours a day. <laughs> I think that was a wonderful description of Rinzai Zen. So I really applied myself to the practice. But then after about a year of being ordained, I hit this huge wall. It was, you'd say, this metaphorical wall. Um, and actually, I remember the, the, the specific evening that this happened. So it was this, this huge wall in terms of, of my life and my practice. I was coming back from uh, what's called Sanzen, so an interview with the Zen master. And I can't exactly remember what happened in the interview room. But obviously, obviously it was something that allowed me to emotionally just shatter. It was really, that evening was such an incredibly dark night. And what had happened was this huge doubt emerged. And not only did a huge doubt emerge in my mind, but boy, did I get hooked by it. And I'm sure many of you know this. Have you noticed how doubt can weave the most convincing stories that feel so real? You ever noticed that? That when you're really caught in the grip to, grip, grips of doubt, it's so convincing. So part of the stories that were going through my head while I was sitting there in the evening coming back from the interview room, again, imagining these rows of everybody in these black robes sitting very silently. And, and the thoughts that were careening through my head were something like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and then I'd look around, and of course, that didn't help. Here I am wearing these black robes, shaved head, all these other people with black robes and a shaved head and this bib that they call a rakasu around my neck. So obviously this increased the doubt. 
and increased the doubt in terms of the, the situation I found myself in. And then it started to, to fall back on myself. Not only what the hell am I doing here, I can't do this. I must be the worst practitioner in this meditation hall. That kind of feeling. You ever go through that? The worst yogi story? So it was the, these two qualities of doubt. I can't do this. And also what was intermixed in this is this doesn't work. Again, as I, I said, it was a dark evening. And, and within that, that, what was going on is, is really when there was, started to become more clarity about the nature of this mind state, um, there was wanting. There was this wanting mind. There was an expectation. A lot of times the wanting mind is expecting something. And what I was looking for in practice is I had come to practice. There was, you could say, the story that was enmeshed in there, the story that I'm a broken person, something's wrong with me. And if I practice diligently enough, if only I practice hard enough and I'm sincere about this practice, then maybe one day I'll become a whole person. Maybe I'll be even become a perfect person. I won't have any of those imperfections anymore. And then there'll be this quality of perfection. You ever get seduced by that dream? That maybe you could practice and all your imperfections will go away? Or to become a person that doesn't have imperfections? And noticing that this was fueling, this was fueling my practice. And so it was a dark night to notice that for a year, this was fueling my practice. But luckily there was a small gem that arose out of the experience. I remember the next morning uh, feeling so shattered and, and and then recommitting myself to something a lot more simple, which is simply being aware of whatever activity that I was involved in, this, this quality of awareness, really this quality of awareness that's been spoken about so often on this retreat. For example, the way that Guy and Carol have, have, have referred to it, awareness that's infused with intelligence and caring or kindness. And the Zen life was perfect for this, really bringing attention to all the details of one's life. And I felt it was there. It was there that a new kind of faith began to arise, a a faith of really truly falling in love with the practice. Faith, at least clear faith, it's an important aspect of this path. It actually creates a foundation or, or a basis for this practice to unfold. And I'm sure many of you know that the Buddha speaks about this in a few of those lists that are so common that we find in early Buddhism. For example, in that list of these five spiritual faculties or these five five qualities of mind that, that support the mind, that allow it to move towards awakening. And the first of those faculties is faith. Another place that we find uh, the Buddha speaking about faith is in a... Um, in a discourse in the Samyutta Nikaya, in the uh, connected discourses uh, called the Upanisa Sutta, which is usually translated the discourse on uh, supporting conditions. And it's it's a fascinating um, discourse. And it's found in the book in the Samyutta Nikaya, usually uh, uh, the the discourses on causation. Uh, 
So it's all these discourses really about dependent origination. And in this discourse, the Buddha's again laying out the conditions that support the mind to move it towards awakening. And the first condition that he encourages us to, to cultivate is this quality of faith. And it's not only at the beginning of our practice that we want to cultivate faith, but to nurture it along the way. There's a wonderful story from the discourses that, that speaks to this, to the, speaks to this quality of, of faith, that it's something that we begin with, but then we nurture along the way. The Buddha was residing outside of Magadha, and he was near a village of Ekanala, and he decided to go out for alms, alms food in the morning. And he happened upon a farmer. And so he was standing there as the farmer was feeding his workers, And the farmer said to him, Recluse, I plow and I sow, and then I eat. So if you want to eat, you must plow and sow, and then you should eat. So of course he wasn't really excited about giving alms food to the Buddha. And the Buddha says to the farmer, I actually do, I, I plow and I sow. And the farmer said something to the extent, Extent. What? Where, where is your plow? Where are your oxen? And this is how the Buddha replies. I just want to uh, share with you just uh, parts of it because I think it's a, a striking image. He says, "Faith is the seed, practice the rain, and wisdom is my yoke and plow. This is how I plow my plowing. The crop it yields is deathlessness, is awakening." And one has plow, and when one has plowed with this plowing, one is released from all suffering. Striking image, don't you think? This image of that, that faith is a seed, and and through the practice, through the practice that we're doing here, that's the rain, and then it naturally arises from that. So we're nurturing the seed to grow, to grow towards the deathless, towards awakening. And, and please, as I speak, to, to keep this in mind, because I think the times that, that uh, doubt arises is when we get caught up in the growth of the seed. So many times what happens in this practice is, is we're nurturing the seed, and then we get somehow neurotic about it and feel like we have to control the growth process. But the, the thing that I appreciate about this image is that's not our job. Our job is to simply water the seed. How do we water the seed? Really simple, resting in this quality of awareness, of intelligence that has this quality of intelligence and caring. The other night, uh, Joseph was speaking about this other mental quality, atapi, which is usually translated as ardency, and he was likening it to falling in love. And tonight, I actually want to speak about faith like the process of falling in love. And for a specific reason, this, the, the faith comes, um, it's usually the translation of this Pali word, Pali being the early scriptural language of Buddhism, this Pali word sadha, which literally means to put one's heart into it or to put one's heart upon. Or if we were to be, um, a, a, have a, a broader sense of this, is to fall in love. 
and I think it's, I think it's a, a wonderful way to translate sadha because I think there is a, a, an emotional relationship that we're trying to cultivate through faith. Faith has to be heartfelt. And right now, you just might want to take a moment to reflect right now. What has allowed you to fall in love with this practice? You wouldn't be here on this retreat if somehow you didn't fall in love with this practice. What was it? Was it possibly a teacher that inspired you? Or a community that inspired you? Or the teachings themselves that inspired you? What allowed you to fall in love with the practice? Or maybe it's because of your own direct experience of how the Dharma, of how that is unfolded in your life, how the Dharma is unfolded in your life. Or your own direct experience of the fruits of this practice. Right? Like just this quality of the Dharma that Carol uh, mentioned last night, ehi pasiko, come see for yourself. This is one of the qualities of the Dharma, that we come and see for ourselves how this practice unfolds. And that's, that's the true way that, that faith unfolds. And this is really the unique flavor of faith on this path. This is not a blind faith. It's a, it's a faith that is really sometimes also translated as confidence, a confidence that arises from our meditation practice. Faith. It's like falling in love. But like faith, but, but like falling in love, faith, if it's unkill, uh, unskillfully placed, the way I unskillfully placed it in my practice, can carry all kinds of deluded projections, just like we can carry when we fall in love. Has anyone here ever fallen in love and gotten wrapped up in those crazy projections that your mind gets filled with about the other person? Or am I the only one? (laughs) Phew. It's crazy what happens, isn't it? There is something magical about it. But the thoughts that start to swirl around in our minds when we fall in love, have you noticed that? Oh, this is going to be the best relationship. It's going to bring me all kinds of happiness. And even deeper down, a lot of times what motivates this is that this person is going to make me feel whole. They're going to take away this, these feelings that I don't like anymore. This, this is the relationship. This is my soulmate. You ever, ever notice what happens to those relationships in your life? <laughs> Sometimes they're filled with lots of dukkha. Actually, the same thing can happen with our, within our practice. Where we can go towards the practice with these qualities of delusion. Like the ones I was talking about in, 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 in my story. This idea that, that somehow I'm going to move from this person where I feel like there's something wrong with me into a person where I can create a person or a sense of self where I feel perfect and whole. That's delusion. 
that's trying to replace one sense of self for another sense of self. And what we're trying to cut through is creating any kind of sense of self. Seeing that whatever sense of self that we create, there's a quality of of unsatisfactoriness there. A little more deeply with this. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you an image, an image uh, that was proposed to describe love. And it comes from the love between two people. And it comes from uh, a platonic dialogue called the symposium. I don't know if anyone's back in maybe there long ago read the symposium. So this platonic dialogue is, it's basically a story that Plato uh, tells. And it's the story of all of these men, of course, Socrates is included, where they get together for a symposium. So in ancient Greece, a symposium was a drinking party. So they're getting together to drink, to drink and to talk about love. And what they did is they all went around and each person there gave their description of what they thought love was. And the second person to speak, I think it was earlier on in the night, was Aristophanes. And Aristophanes was a playwright. He was a playwright that wrote a number of comedies in ancient Greece. And please remember, when I share with you the story, please remember in ancient Greece, comedies were really the darkest view that one could have of human nature. And Aristophanes Aristophanes was very skilled at this view. And this is the story he tells of love. He said that, that long time ago, we were these creatures and we were these cartwheels. So two people would be stuck together. So you'd have some cartwheels, there would be two men stuck together. And other cartwheels were two women would be stuck together. And yet other cartwheels where there'd be a man and a woman stuck together. And they would roll around very happily. But of course, in all Greek stories, they got a little bit arrogant and tried to fly up towards the gods. And as the gods saw this, they got incredibly angry. Zeus, of course, getting angry. And in order to punish them, divided all these cartwheels up. And so that they were all scattered across the world. And they were left looking all over the world for their other half so that they could once again feel whole again. What a depressing view of love. (laughs) Again, reflect on when you've gotten involved in a relationship, when you think that relationship is somehow going to complete you. We can do this with this meditation practice. We come here with a feeling of incompleteness. Something's wrong with me. And there's some hope that if I practice hard enough, the practice will take that experience away from me. But please remember, that experience of incompleteness or something wrong with me, what is it? It's just a conglomeration of sensations, of thoughts and feelings that have congealed together that will arise and pass away. And the amazing thing about the teaching of the Buddha is that he was not proposing that we try to create another kind of self to help cure this self that we don't like. He was asking us to see through this concoction that we create called a self. 
And again, how do you do that? It's doing what you're doing on this, on this retreat, coming back to the simplicity of this practice. That's it. It's so simple what we're doing here. This awareness, this awareness with intelligence and caring, coming back to that again and again and again. The essence of this practice of, of resting in this awareness, it's far simpler than becoming somebody. Can you hear just the power in that? That when you're aware, you get to sidestep that whole mess of trying to get out of being a certain self and trying to move into another kind of self. It just doesn't work. That's the cycle of suffering when we get lost in this trying to become. That's why I appreciate this, this simple uh, quote from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, the personality never gets enlightened. I think that's an important thing to remember. So we're placing our attention in the correct place, which is this simple awareness of what's going on right now, what's arising and passing away, rather than getting lost in this project like I was doing during that first year of, of being a monastic. So within this delusion, what we can find is, is what arises is doubt. And I want to speak about this. And what is within doubt, and I want to speak about this because this is the thing that can, can undermine faith, is you might notice that what is often within doubt is expectation. It's some kind of wanting or not wanting. What are some forms this can take? There can be these small forms of doubt such as the belief, if only I was doing the practice correctly, maybe this pain would go away. Oh, I must not be doing the practice correctly because I'm still in pain. (laughs) Or we blame it on the practice. This practice must not be working because I still have that pain in my back. And not only that, it's increasing. And you can, of course, place in there all different kinds of states of mind, of boredom, of agitation, of the scattered mind, of frustration. There's a subtle expectation. There can be this subtle expectation that if if I do this practice, then I will have all these pleasant results. You ever notice your mind do this? Yeah, that's, that's the setup for doubt. Because there's an expectation in there. And yes, there's a caveat to this. There is a place for discernment, for skillful discernment to help us really cultivate and open up the space for this quality of awareness that, that, that we're, we're trying to cultivate. There are small things that we can kind of, you could say, tinker with. But this is different than getting lost in the cloud of doubt. The discernment has a, a quality of clarity to it. Doubt doesn't. Have you noticed the difference in the feeling quality between both of those? It's something to become curious about. So I want to go back to faith because I think this helps us clarify what faith really is. Faith is like falling in love, as I was talking about, or confidence. 
a confidence and a falling in love without expectation. And yes, yes, we can have this aspiration to awaken, to heal. But can you engage in that without some kind of grasping expectation intermeshed with it? I want to share with you, I want to say a little bit more about uh, expectation, how to, to, to deal with expectations in our practice. Because as I was mentioning, this is what I feel can underlie doubt. Please remember, I think this is very important to remember, that, that we don't know how this practice is supposed to unfold on a day-to-day basis. And to notice there can be this quality of mind, this state of mind that actually really thinks that it does know. Have you noticed this dynamic? A part of the mind that feels like it does know how this practice is supposed to unfold. And then when it doesn't unfold that way, it's disappointed. One story about this, which I have found helpful on, uh, to keep in mind on retreats. This is a, a Zen story. There was a, a young monk by the name of Fayan. And Fayan was traveling, and this was very common in China, to travel from temple to temple as part of one's uh, spiritual path, as part of one's practice. So one would travel to a temple, practice there for a while, and then, then journey on to another t- temple. And on their way, they were on their way, they met this Zen master, this hermit, Dizong. And uh, the Zen master, Dizong, asked Fayan, he asked he him, where are you going? Fayan's a good monk. I really appreciate his replies. And he says, on pilgrimage, wherever my feet take me. Right there we can hear, I don't know if you can hear the wisdom in Fayan's practice. Very clear, he's on pilgrimage. Where is he going? Wherever his feet take me. Do you hear there's, there's already... Not this, this grasping for some expectation. But luckily, uh, Dizong is a, is a good Zen master. He's always trying to catch, catch the young monk. And so he, he asks, what do you expect from pilgrimage? And Fayan says, I don't know. Dizong actually compliments him and says, ah, Ah, not knowing is most intimate. Can you allow for that quality of intimacy within your practice? To not know how it's going to unfold. To simply allow your feet to take you however they do and to not know how it's going to unfold. Because when we're traveling on pilgrimage, when you're on this path during these six weeks or three months, there's going to be sunny days and there's going to be cloudy days. It's just the way the weather is. What would it be like to stop trying to forecast the weather or even try to change the weather? What would it be like to simply allow your feet to take you wherever they go and to not know? 
how the path unfolds. Those feet, those feet of awareness, awareness that's infused with intelligence and caring. When I was in Burma, I was uh, told this kind of the gossip that would go around in Burma. <laughs> I think it's quite well-known gossip. It said that that uh, that women, Burmese women, usually from the village, more so than women from the city. The, the, really, the the practitioners have the deepest faith. Their practice, um, compared to other practitioners, especially practitioners from the West, unfolds much more dramatically and deeply than definitely Westerners or from uh, uh, Burmese men or Burmese women from the city. And it's because what's said is, is the reason for that is because they have such deep faith. It's really quite fascinating. So what they do is they go out and see a Sayadaw and the Sayadaw tells them how to practice. And what do they do? They practice. They don't think about it. They don't entertain any kinds of doubts. They simply surrender themselves to the practice. They don't worry about what the weather is every day. They don't have a mind that tries to forecast it. Can we allow space for that quality of mind within our practice? Practice without expectation, not even the expectation of any kind of results. Of course, still the aspiration for healing, for awakening. But without the expectation or the hope for results. Another story that I carry with me that I find inspiring in, in, in terms of this, that gives me a sense of what deep faith is, is, is about um, a man by the name of uh, Vedran Smailovic. Some of you might have heard his name before. He was a cellist, and in the early 90s, he was living in Sarajevo. And if you remember, in the early 1990s, Sarajevo, there was a huge save, uh, the siege of Sarajevo is what it's called, where the Serbian forces surrounded Sarajevo. And uh, it was really a, a, a horrible situation. It went on for years. And what the, the Serbian forces were doing is they would do two things, and this was on a daily basis. Is first of all, they cut off electricity and water and tried to seal off the city. And then they would um, usually shell the city um, most every day. So this is just upon the, the residents of Sarajevo. And not only that, they would have snipers situated um, on the outskirts of the city. So wherever you were walking in the city, you never knew if you were in the, in the sights of a sniper or not. And they would just uh, pick people off uh, during the siege. And Vedran Smailovic had the idea that he would play his cello. And he'd play it in all kinds of places. He would play it in the streets. He'd play it at funerals, at bomb shelters, in bombed out buildings. He was playing it in a city that was under siege.
And I think the thing that strikes me about this story <clears throat> is I don't think he was asking, is this helping or not? What was important was his, his dedication to play and the faith that somehow, somehow that was going to allow for a change, that somehow that was going to help the people of Sarajevo. What would it be like to have that kind of faith, that kind of trust in simply being aware? Not being concerned about how it's going to play out, but knowing somewhere deep inside that it's going to have a profound effect in your life and in the lives of others. How? I don't know. To hold the not knowing as well as the faith. Can you have that quality of faith within your practice? The kind of faith that Vedran Smailovic must have had to play the cello for four years in all these places while his city was under siege. So what should we do in our practice when our expectations do get the better of us? In other words, how can you work with doubt? With doubt? What can help with doubt, this doubt that can undermine our faith? So a few things. One is, is it can be so powerful just to come to the point of being able to say, oh, this is doubt just to have that clarity and to name it or label it or at least know it, that it's simply that, nothing more. Or as Joseph was mentioning this morning, dividing up the thought, seeing the component aspects of it, seeing the words that arise in the mind and the images that that conglomerate together to give this, this feeling and also the emotions that conglomerate together to give the feeling of the doubt, to divide it into these component parts to see the details of it and how it arises and passes away. And simply being with with those aspects, those component parts of doubt. That's one thing that can really happen, really help with that. Also, I want to point out that doubt can be incredibly tricky, just like the other hindrances. Doubt is, is the fifth of the five hindrances and can be very slippery. But all the hindrances can have this quality that that when we're practicing, we don't see them clearly. And it can happen to all of us. One story about this, there was uh, the uh, monastic, the Venerable Anuruddha, one of the the Buddhist disciples. And he went to one of the Buddha's chief disciples, Sariputta, for advice. And he said, you know, I don't know what's going on with my practice. Here I am, I got this divine eye. Remember, I have this divine eye where I can see throughout the world. And not only that, when I check in, I have this unremitting energy, this energy that's just fueling my practice. And what, of course, what comes with that is this very alert mindfulness. And, and, the, and the, the mind feels concentrated. 
And not only that, but the thing is, and then he says, but the thing is, is I don't get it. I don't know why I'm not completely awake yet. Why haven't I let go of all the fetters of the mind? And so Sariputta says to him, well, what's really going on is this sense that you have of your divine I, that's conceit. And, and that unremitting energy that you have, that's actually restlessness. <laughs> and all this talk about how you're not enlightened, I'd call that worry. And of course, Anuru, the Venerable Anuruddha was very, very uh, happy to hear this and was able to see these states of mind more clearly and of course was able to move towards awakening as a result. It's true, we can get lost in these. So we do our best to be aware and to report clearly to the teachers. I think that's a, the wonderful thing, especially about the, the teachers that all of you have on this, this retreat. They're incredibly insightful. And to, to make best use of the interviews when you have them. Now we have to come to the question, faith in what? What do, we, what do you have faith in? Where should we place our faith? Again, a, a, another story of this, because I, I think it, it clarifies a quality of faith that you find in early Buddhism, which actually changes as, as Buddhism moves through uh, different countries. And this is the uh, story of a monastic by the name of uh, the Venerable Vakali. And Vakali one day was sick, and the Buddha decided to go and see, see him because he was sick. And, uh, and, and Vakali, when he, when he sees uh, the Buddha, he says, For a long time, Lord, I've wanted to come and set eyes on the Blessed One, but I had not the strength in this body to come and see the Blessed One. And it's interesting what, of how the Buddha replies to him. He says, Enough, Vakali, what is there to see in this body of mine? He who sees Dhamma, Vakali, sees me. He who sees me sees Dhamma. Truly seeing Dhamma, one sees me. Seeing me, one sees the Dharma. So in early, early Buddhism, it's very clear that this is not about having this um, kind of guru relationship with a teacher. It's this clarity that the teacher's there to help one start to have a faith and devotion in the Dharma. And I think this is uh, really wonderful and striking to see this in, in early Buddhism. The Buddha's really clear about where should one should place one attention, one's attention. So, so how do we have faith in the Dharma? What, what, how, how can that, what does that look like? I think there's a, a couple ways. I think there's many ways. So I'm just going to mention two, and there might be ways that might uh, uh, speak to you personally. But these are just two things that I, that I think are quite important in terms of having faith in the Dharma. The first one is having faith in our own ability to wake up. I feel like this is very important. And I want to share with you a passage by Annie Dillard. She's going to be using really more Christian language here, but I think it speaks to, uh, uh, to our situation as well. She says, she asked this question, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? To me, she's asking, who will awaken? Who is it? that will awaken. 
And she answers, there is no one but us. There is no one to send, nor a clean hand, nor a pure heart on the face of the earth, nor in the earth, but only us. A generation comforting ourselves with the notion that we have come at an awkward time, that our innocent fathers are all dead, as if innocence had ever been. But there is no one but us. There never has been. Do you hear what she's trying to convey here? In this this statement that there's no one but us? We can get this idea that awakening and liberation, that freedom, it's for those, those monastics, those monks and those nuns in Asia that have the quote-unquote pure heart or that are somehow innocent. That they're not like me, they're not like us. And what is she saying here? There's never been such a thing as a pure heart or innocence. There's only been people like us who have awakened. I feel like this is so important to, re- to remember. I think often, I, sometimes I remember seeing my own mind do this. Sometimes I hear these, these um, uh, inspiring but, but sometimes amazing stories of these, of these practitioners that seem like inhuman, superhuman. And of course, my mind takes that and thinks, well, well, that means that awakening is only for these people that have some kind of pure heart or innocence or a diligence that I don't have. So I think it's very important to dispel that notion if it arises in your mind and to remember there's no one but us that can awaken. Can you begin to have faith and confidence in that? Liberation is possible for all of us here. Where else can we place our faith? I think the other one is the one I keep on mentioning, which is placing your faith in the simple practice of being aware, of really knowing one's experience, moment after moment after moment. I feel this is important to cultivate the trust and confidence in that. To really begin to find your home in awareness. Have you noticed where your mind likes to find its home? Where is your mind trying to find home during the day? Might be in figuring out or planning or analyzing. And simply thinking. Have you noticed where your mind is trying to create a home? Or a lot of times it's just trying to create some kind of sense of solid self to make it feel secure and to find a home there. There's actually nothing wrong with planning, figuring out, and analyzing. 
but can you notice it from the home of awareness and, ha- and trust in that, in, in, in the simplicity of this practice? Have you noticed really when, when, when there starts to be a rhythm with the practice, how simple it is? It really is. And, and really what the problem is, is the complications, the complications and the concoctions that the mind creates around it and getting lost in those. And a lot of times, once that faith begins to, to develop, you might notice that there's more and more of this quality of surrendering. Not so much doing the practice, but surrendering to the practice. Allowing the practice to move through you rather than the sense of, I'm doing the practice. And I, I feel like that's one of the, the, the gifts of, of faith, is, is it can really begin to wash away the sense of, I am doing the practice. I remember the first time I went to Burma, before I went there, I was, I was nervous. I was going to practice at Pandita Rama and then uh, Semangan, which was also, um, I was going to be uh, practicing there with Saida Upandita. And I'd heard a lot of stories about Saida Upandita. Some were really great, and some were just horrific. <laughs> so I was nervous. And I remember calling a friend who had spent years living in, in Burma, just uh, uh, solely practicing with Saita Upandita. And I said, what do I need to remember? I asked him, what do I need to remember about practice? And I, I, I so appreciated his, his advice. He said, you know what? It's so simple there. They feed you. All you need to do is sit when it's time to sit, walk when it's time to walk, then you... Then you go to the bathroom when it's time to go to the bathroom. And there's just a simple awareness of all of it. And then you report it to your teacher. That's it. Don't worry. (laughs) It's that simple. And I remember when I was in Burma, always coming back to that, when I would be freaking out about something, to come back to, oh yeah, oh yeah, what did my friend tell me? This is it. Just the simple awareness of, of whatever's arising right now. The last thing, the last arena I want to share with you some reflections on is uh, how to approach difficulties within our practice. Just because difficulties as a whole, especially the difficulties that overwhelm us, can uh, can undermine faith. It's the thing that can can allow uh, doubt to begin to arise. And of course, there's the simple practice of being with those difficulties, but you might notice that it's not so easy at times. It's much easier to talk about. It's a nice thing about being up here. You talk about it, make it sound really simple. It really isn't. It's difficult at times. These are some things that, that have helped me. One is this uh, image that uh, I got from uh, a writer by the name of Sibon Vey. I don't know if any of you read, read the writings of Sibon Vey. She was, uh, she was a Christian mystic. She wrote uh, actually a lot of different philosophical writings as well. So, of course, she's using language in terms of Christianity, but I think it fits well for our practice. And for Simone Weil, one of the problematic things that she was faced with in her spiritual path was always feeling separate from God. It was this feeling of of, uh, severe separation, of isolation. 
which I think is interesting just because I think that's also a modern dilemma. That's for another Dharma talk. And she came up with this uh, wonderful image of how uh, the spiritual path works. She says, actually, the separation, the separation from God or the separation here from our practice, intensive purposes of this, of this retreat, the separation from our practice is actually the link. The separation is the link. And she gives this image. She gives this image of these two prisoners in these prison cells, and they have a wall that separates them. And yet, with the wall, once they start to knock on the wall, the wall itself becomes the link that they have between one another. So at first, when they come into the prison, prison cells, it, it's, it looks, it, the wall is that which separates. But then when they come into a skillful relationship with the wall, it links them. It brings relationship. The separation is the link. Can you have faith and trust that the things that feel like they're separating you from your practice actually are linking them? A lot of times that's really, and this is very true, even with all the hindrances and things that arise, when you bring awareness to it, it allows us to link back into our practice. Can you move towards anything that, it fe- that you feel like is separating you from your practice or creating this sense of separation and getting a sense that it's leaking, le- linking you through awareness? The poet Pesha Gertler, I feel, puts this well in words in her, her poem, The Healing Time. She begins... Finally, finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. I have to stop there just because I think that's a great opening line. <laughs> right? Finally, I'm finally on my way to yes, and then I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. Have you ever experienced that? It's called meditation. <laughs> It can really have that feeling at times, at least, at least in the dark times. So again, finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life, all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. Can your difficulties, can your wounds turn out to be that which is holy. So just to review a little bit, faith, this quality of faith. To remember it's like falling in love and to be aware of those delusions that can follow when we fall in love. 
and doubt within doubt to be sensitive to expectation can you cultivate this quality of not knowing a not knowing that's most intimate not knowing specifically in terms of how the path unfolds and even not having the expectation around result like the the cellists the cellist of Sarajevo Vedran Smilovic And may the separations in your practice, may you see that they're the link, just like those two prisoners in the wall. So may the arising of faith in all of our practices, may it go towards the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's sit just for a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.